Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. When I began this podcast back in 2019, I had a vision, and that was one day I would publish a book called How They Love Mary. Over my life as a writer and researcher, I have read the writings of many holy men and women and many saints, and I have discovered how they loved the Blessed Mother and they have inspired me. I'm excited to share that at the end of April, Sophia Institute Press will release the book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Marian Devotion. It features saints like St. Damien of Molokai, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Therese of Lisieux, and other unknown people like Mother Mary Francis from Roswell, New Mexico, or Father Lucas Etlin, a monk who died back in the early 1900s from Conception Abbey in Missouri. I am so excited for How They Love Mary to hit bookshelves and to get into your hands so that you might deepen your devotion to the Blessed Mother. Get How They Love Mary from Sophia Institute Press or wherever you get your Catholic books. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. For a while now, even dating back to my youth and my years in college, I was familiar with an apparition in the United States called Our Lady of America. Being from the Diocese of Green Bay, Wisconsin, and the home of the champion Wisconsin apparition, I knew that this was another apparition of Our Lady that had taken place after the apparitions received by Adele Bryce in 1859, these apparitions in the 1900s, received by Sister Mildred. And there's been some controversy in recent years over the apparition of Our Lady of America. In fact, several bishops came out with a statement saying that they weren't going to approve it while also the apparition has had some staunch defenders of it, including uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke. And so today, I'm very delighted to be speaking with Monsignor Arthur Culkins. He is a native of Erie, Pennsylvania, but currently lives in Louisiana, where he resides at Our Lady of Prom Sucker Parish. I've gotten to know Monsignor Culkins over the years because of my involvement with the Mariological Society of America. Monsignor is an accomplished theologian, having researched and studied so many different topics. He's written especially about John Paul II's Marian consecration and entrustment, and he is a very popular uh, theologian that many seek to study his writings, and he helps uh, to raise awareness, I think, about uh, different mystics, for example, in the church. For example, he has a great uh, admiration for the venerable Concepcion Conchita Cabrera, uh, who had some revelations herself about the priesthood and things of that nature, and I was introduced to her because of him. So, I'm happy to speak with him today because I know he's a defender of Our Lady of America, and I want to learn more about this apparition. So thanks for joining me today, Monsignor Culkins. Thank you for having me. By the way, um, Concepcion Cabrera de Armida, commonly known, or more commonly known as Conchita, is now a blessed. Oh. So that even gives her uh, more standing, so to speak, 
in terms of the many revelations that she received. And it's true, she was truly a kind of victim soul for the priesthood and for priests. But anyway, on to Our Lady of America. Yes, and you know, I think Conchita, once I read all of her revelations, uh, you so kindly actually sent me one of her books uh, a few years ago, and I paged through it, but one of these days I want to sit down and use it as the material for my daily holy hours and just to pray with what revelation she received that might make for another uh, good episode i would think so but about our lady of america before we talk about the messages and the story of sister mildred and such i thought maybe first it would be good just to simply ask you why is it that you have such a strong devotion or are such a strong defender of this apparition of our lady I suppose that's a good question, and I believe I was first introduced to the revelations of Our Lady of America. Many of them took place in the 50s when I was a child in grade school, so I can easily identify, oh, that was 56, I was in the sixth grade, etc. But I think probably the primary influence came from my great mentor, Father Peter Damien Failner. He was an extraordinary theologian. I hope eventually he will be better known uh, after his death than he was before it. But he was a great, uh, he was a Franciscan. He began his religious life as a conventional Franciscan. He spent about 25 years with the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate, and then, before the end of his life, returned to the conventuals. That in itself is a long and complicated story. But during his time with the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate, he did an enormous amount of writing and research, and he was also the mentor of my doctoral study. And I did a second edition some years ago, and he read all of it and wrote an afterward. So he was certainly a man whom I benefited from enormously. I believe he was one of those rare people who was truly holy, truly wise, and truly erudite, which is rather rare. And I believe it was through him that I first came to know explicitly about Our Lady of America. Subsequently, I discovered, and this is somewhat humorous, that on the very date of my golden jubilee of priestly ordination, the 7th of May, 2020, when all of us, of course, were locked down practically all over the world because of the hype about... uh, the coronavirus, which I have also been hit by, but survived happily. Um, A friend sent me the statement of the six American bishops who decreed that there was no evidence of the supernatural in these apparitions. And because I was hit with COVID at the time, I began to work on a reply, but then dropped it. And finally, at the end of 2020, I did write a lengthy statement and had it 
sent to the six bishops. There were two archbishops and four bishops, and they had jurisdiction, evidently, because Sister Mildred, whose original name was Sister Ephraim in religion, uh, lived in their dioceses. So, finally, a kind, a kind friend sent my response to all six of the bishops. Um, I heard from four of them, although only one wrote me a letter that had any substance at all. And I retain my position that they even describe in their statement that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, under whom I worked my last year, I, I worked in the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, which has now been disbanded, for 21 years, and our last year we were directly under the CDF, uh, that they had been told to get together a group of Mariologists and to uh, study carefully and then pass on their research and their positions uh, to the six bishops. So uh, th that's <laughs> the, uh, the, the kind of um, situation uh, that uh, brings us to the present. Uh, what I did find, uh, as you will know, because the, I believe the state, the, uh, my response to the bishop statement, uh, can be found on the internet. Uh, I have a blog page on a site called christendom-awake.org, and if one goes down the left-hand column, one will find my, my name. I'm a bit uh, late in getting some more recent entries on there. But the crux of the matter actually came to the statement that uh, is attributed to St. Joseph, who appeared to Sister uh, Mildred at least three times. I think the first, she may not have seen him, but basically on three occasions uh, he communicated with her, and told her that he was a co-redemptor. Now, that's a Latin term, which would mean co-redeemer. And obviously, in recent years, there have been many attacks on Our Lady as co-redemptrix, which is the feminine form of uh, co-redemptor. And that's another story, but I do cover it to some extent in my response to the bishops, because there is a prejudice in many theological circles. Although I find the title uh, completely compatible with the Church's teaching and with the teaching of recent popes up until Pope Francis. And what that means basically is that Mary collaborated in the work of the redemption, but to use the terminology of Lumen Gentium chapter 8, which is the Council's primary statement about Mary, the Second Vatican Council's primary statement, that her sharing in the work of the redemption is secondary and subordinate and totally dependent upon 
Jesus. And this is not to deny in any way that what Jesus did to redeem us was all sufficient. But rather, that just as Eve had a secondary role in the fall, because Adam is the head of the human race, so also Mary is the new Eve and had a role of being helpmate to Jesus, the new Adam. And he is called that by St. Paul at least twice. The teaching about Mary as the new Eve is very ancient in the Church. We find it in St. Justin Martyr, who dies roughly about the year 150, and then again in St. Irenaeus of Lyon, recently named a doctor of the Church, and I dare say it was high time. He dies roughly around the year 202. And he was a disciple of Polycarp, a very famous martyr of the early church, who was a disciple of John. So that the teaching of Irenaeus, and possibly also of Justin Martyr, uh, may well be part of the apostolic tradition from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. And Irenaeus tells us that the knot that was tied by Eve was untied by Mary. So, since about the 1500s, the term co-redemptrix has been used of Our Lady. But we're clear on the fact this does not mean that she is part of a team of redeemers, but that Jesus is the Redeemer, and Mary's role is secondary, subordinate, and totally dependent upon Jesus. So I thought it was important to clarify that, despite the the attacks by people whom I, I will frankly call modernists against it, at least a very deep prejudice. It was taught very, very consistently by Pope John Paul II, and even though he stopped using the term in 1992, he always continued teaching the doctrine. So, in my response to the bishops, I do deal with that. And so the, so the position really came out in this statement of the bishops that calling Joseph a co-redeemer was an error. Now, it's too bad that these bishops didn't also include a Josephologist or two in their consultation, because while this is not the fact that Joseph was a co-redeemer in a lesser way than Mary, is not an error, I maintain. It has been held for well over a hundred years by reputable theologians. And I really believe that the report that was signed by these six bishops is a very deficient document. And to be clear about it, it is certainly not infallible. I will just point out that the revelations of St. Faustina on the merciful Jesus were forbidden by the Holy Office, the earlier name for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and only removed maybe 20 years later, I'm not sure of the dates, 
and it was argued that they were dealing with a faulty translation of the Polish. So the fact that bishops, to whom we owe deference, certainly as successors of the apostles, could rule on something and say it was not of supernatural origin, uh, does not mean that this is an infallible judgment. It's a very temporal and temporary, I hope temporary, judgment. So the fact is that the whole document, I think, is pretty radically flawed, uh, poorly written, and I'm very sorry that these six bishops decided to sign it. The fact is that Joseph, uh, I believe, and this has been held in the Church uh, since the time of Jean Gerson, and uh, certainly, uh, well, I'm a little early on that, that that he belongs to the hypostatic order, which I'll explain in a moment. But by the time of Suarez, um, this is, it's been held by many theologians that Joseph has an, a totally unique place in the Holy Family. For hundreds of years, the Church was very impressed with John the Baptist and considered that he was the greatest man after Mary the greatest creature, human creature, because Jesus says of him that there is no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. But, he then says, the least born into the kingdom is greater than he. And it seems to me that that second part of Jesus' statement tended to be somewhat ignored and There is a strong tradition in the Church that at the time of the visitation, when John leapt in his mother's womb, at the moment of when Mary was present carrying Jesus in her womb, and that from that moment, when he was six months in his mother's womb, he was freed from original sin. Joseph, in fact in these apparitions to Sister Mildred, says to her, I was not conceived without original sin. This was a unique grace of Mary, and I would argue, given of necessity, so that Mary would have nothing at all negative that would harm the formation of the human nature of Jesus. So Joseph says, unlike Mary, I was not conceived without original sin, but the moment after my conception, I was confirmed in holiness. Again, to me, that is something that I have no trouble at all understanding or grasping, precisely because Joseph, while he did not have a biological relationship with Jesus, was the creature closest to him in his formative years. So that if he had any negativity, (laughs) um, results of sins, they would have again harmed the human, the formation of the human nature of Jesus. So returning to uh, Suarez, great Jesuit theologian, 
uh, shortly after St. Ignatius of Loyola, he held that Mary belongs to what may be called the hypostatic order. The order of living beings basically is God, angels, men, which of course includes women. We all knew that until radical feminists took over. Um, animals and plants. So Mary is below the angels, but because she contributed to the incarnation, what theologians call the hypostatic union, that is the union in Jesus between his human nature and his divine nature, she belongs to what is called the hypostatic order, and therefore she is lifted even above the angels, which is rather common Catholic understanding. Uh, we call her Queen of the Angels. And Suarez argued that Joseph, too, in a lesser way, but a real way, belongs to the hypostatic order. Not the hypostatic union, he did not contribute to it as Mary did. But he was called to be the human, but not biological, father of Jesus. St. Thomas Aquinas argues that he and Mary entered into a virginal marriage, and that at the moment of the Annunciation, they were legitimately married. Because in Jewish practice, first the husband and wife make their vows, and then sometime later, the bridegroom will bring the bride to his house. Cardinal Burke, in fact, has written a beautiful article about this that was published in Divinitas and later in Missio Immaculate. So, those who talk about Mary as an unwed mother really don't know what they're talking about. When she said her yes to the angel, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. She was already married to Joseph in a virginal marriage. And because of that, Joseph, it's taken a long time for the church. There were great saints. I, I point out especially Bernard of Clairvaux, Bernardine of Siena, uh, Francis de Sales, Teresa of Avila. They all came to recognize that after Mary, there is no greater saint than Joseph. But it, it took the magisterium, which is always behind, it's always slow, uh, till 1870, and then shortly thereafter, to begin recognition of the importance of the role of Joseph. So, Suarez argues that he, too, is a member of the hypostatic order. And the reality is that in the Holy Family, although Joseph is the least, Jesus and Mary obey him. And in these revelations to Sister Mildred, he says, the greatest suffering of my life was the fact that I was not, I knew I would not be present on Calvary. I would not be there as a support to Jesus and Mary. 
because obviously he heard the words of Simeon, and all too often he's been presented as the total outsider, which he was certainly not. He was the insider, and one could go on about this at some length. But I pointed out to the bishops what they chose to indicate as the crucial flaw, which indicates that there's nothing supernatural here. Uh, I pointed out to them, this has been taught in the Church by reputable theologians for well over a hundred years, possibly more. And that's not a legitimate reason for uh, rejecting all that came to Sister Mildred. I have not studied it at great length, but there were similar revelations about St. Joseph in the Amazon in Brazil, in a place called Itapiranga. The bishop of the place, I think he didn't have the title bishop, he might have been a, uh, it might have been a prefecture apostolic, but in any case, studied the matter and declared it was worthy of belief. I do not have the dates in front of me, but within the past few years, the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, has overruled that judgment by the bishop and said it is not worthy of belief. Uh, I have not studied it at great length, but what St. Joseph says there is very, very similar to what he said to Sister Mildred. I think in the one place he referred to his heart as most pure, and in the other place, most chaste, which is really obviously the same thing. Theologians have argued that even though Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, God willed that he be the legitimate husband, spouse of Mary, and that therefore, since at the moment of the Annunciation, when Mary gave her consent on behalf of the whole human race, they were married, that Jesus is the virginal fruit of their virginal marriage, which I think is a very beautiful thing. So even though most of the messages come from Our Lady, although there are some from the archangels, uh, Joseph is an important person, and I think so important in our own day, when men are often so confused about their role. And I'll just point out this, that for well over a hundred years in our American situation, there has been uh, succeeding problems with the role of the husband and father in the family. We can go back to World War One, when there was trench warfare, and there were many men who didn't return home, so there was no more father or husband in the family because they died in World War One. There were others who came home maimed physically and mentally and emotionally. Today we have a word or a uh, part of the alphabet soup that I often uh, get mixed up, um, post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. No one labeled it as such um, after World War One, 
But I had a great uncle about whom they used to say, well, poor Uncle Alfred, you know, he was gassed during the war. Well, obviously, there was some recognition that he was suffering from something that happened in World War One. Within another generation, there was World War Two. more of the same. Many more men didn't return home. Their homes became husbandless and fatherless. And then, after that, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the unending wars, all of this has taken a terrible toll on the father as the breadwinner and the head of the household. And by this, of course, I'm not denying for a moment that husband and wife are equal, but they don't have the same roles. Uh, even though today in our governments they've totally embraced this destruction of the family and tried to replace it with all kinds of other aberrations. That, together with radical feminism, has very much undermined the role of husband and father. And I think it's just so appropriate that at this stage, we celebrated a year in honor of St. Joseph. Because we men need him. Not that women don't, but that he shows us what a real husband and father is about. So I'm very grateful for the year of St. Joseph that uh, was inaugurated by Pope Francis and for the work behind it, really, of Father Donald Calloway, who practically single-handedly managed to get this celebrated and to put out this wonderful book on consecration to St. Joseph. You mentioned the virginal marriage of Joseph and Mary, and I'm happy to say that I've been reading The Mystical City of God uh, this year uh, as a daily podcast, actually, every day, putting out about 20 minutes of reading and then a little commentary on the reading, and uh, lots of people are following along with it. And in the first volume, it talks about the virginal marriage of Joseph and Mary and how Joseph had already had made that commitment himself. And so then, you know, so everything you said really resonated well with these uh, mystical revelations uh, received by uh, Venerable Maria. And as you were talking, one of the things you were mentioning, of course, was the idea of co-redemptrix, and that was the issue at hand. And the exact uh, quotation from the message uh, of Our Lady of America and this message of St. Joseph was, Their future suffering was ever present to me and became my daily cross. I became in union with my holy spouse, co-redeemer of the human race. Through compassion for the sufferings of Jesus and Mary, I cooperated as no other in the salvation of the world. So that's probably the message that the bishops were uh, focusing on. But if we even think about the co-redemption in the sense of that we all offer our sufferings in a redemptive way, this whole teaching about redemptive suffering, well, then we become co-redeemers alongside Mary and Joseph as well, uh, participating right, in that. Right, even though not on the same level. Yes, <laughs> yep, correct. Now, the other aspect about co-redemption that is often um, related to it is this idea of mediation of grace. Mary is the mediatrix of grace. And the, and the calling for the fifth Marian dogma, that's one of the aspects. And so 
you have here another message of St. Joseph in these apparitions received by Sister Mildred or Sister Mary Ephraim. And Joseph says this, May Jesus and Mary, through my hands, bestow upon you eternal peace. So kind of, I think that line there is bringing up the idea of mediation of grace. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was St. Bernardine of Siena who said that God has chosen to dispense graces through the hands of Mary. And so now we Mm -hmm. have St. Joseph here who's saying, may Jesus and Mary through my hands. So it's almost as if they're deferring it to St. Joseph. What do you make of this sentence, I guess, of the the message in terms of mediation of grace and, and that of its relationship to Mary? Well, I think that uh, there are several things to say about it, but first of all, at the time of Jean Gerson, who was Chancellor of the University of Paris in the 1400s into the early 1500s, he was a great defender of St. Joseph and referred to the Holy Family of Nazareth as the earthly trinity. Now, this is an analogous language, and an analogy is always something which uh, is a likeness in difference. So just as we consecrate ourselves to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, we can consecrate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and then we can consecrate ourselves to St. Joseph, because they are uh, closest to Jesus. But as Louis de Montfort says, St. Louis de Montfort, in number 125 of True Devotion, he says, we consecrate ourselves to Jesus and to Mary. And I believe it would be possible to say also to St. Joseph in a lesser way. But we consecrate ourselves to Mary as a means, and we consecrate ourselves to Jesus as the end. So in other words, uh, Mary's role is mediatorial to Jesus. He is the mediator between us and the Father, but Mary is the mediatrix, between, which is the feminine form of mediator, between us and Jesus. So, Joseph, I would argue, along with Mary, and I've already said it, is a member of that earthly trinity, belongs to the hypostatic order, which places him above even all the angels. And it is interesting that John Paul II, in writing his his um, beautiful apostolic exhortation on St. Joseph, in Torres Custos, he actually uses the term in there, uh, minister salutis. And Pope Francis, in adding uh, seven further Uh, invocations to the litany of St. Joseph chose that as one of them. Minister Salutis is to state that Joseph is, by his role, a minister of salvation. That his role was necessary so that the redemption could take place. He was the shadow of the Eternal Father. And It's true there is mediation here. Now, returning to the the situation of Mary, Father Peter Damien Failner produced nine volumes, nine years in a row, 
that were the results of symposia that were held under the title of Mary at the Foot of the Cross. And each year there was a different theme. Uh, each year I was blessed to be able to participate and also gave a paper. And I believe it was volume seven. I'll go to my bookshelf and check it. The subtitle was Mediatrix Because Co-Redemptrix. And I'll try to explain that briefly. Yeah, Co-Redemptrix, therefore Mediatrix of all graces. And base, the basic metaphysical and theological uh, underlying truth is already clearly pointed out by Pius X in his encyclical Ad Diem Illum, which was written to commemorate the dogma of the Immaculate Conception 50 years after it occurred. So it came out in 1904. And at length, he states that because of Mary's collaboration in the work of the redemption, she is therefore the mediatrix of all the graces that come from the redemption, from this community of will and suffering between Christ and Mary, he's quoting here from Eadmer, the disciple of St. Anselm, she merited to become most worthily the reparatrix of the lost world. So reparatrix is the feminine form of repairer. And dispensatrix, or dispenser, of all the gifts that our Savior purchased for us by his death and by his blood. It cannot, of course, be denied that the dispensing of these treasures is the particular and supreme right of Jesus Christ, for they are the exclusive fruit of his death, who by his nature is the mediator between God and man. Nevertheless, by this union in sorrow and suffering, we, as we have said, which existed between the mother and the son, it has been allowed to the august virgin to be the most powerful mediatrix and advocate of the whole world with her divine son. The source, then, is Jesus Christ, and of his fullness we have all received. From him the whole body, being closely joined and knit together through every joint of the system, according to the functioning and due measure of each single part, derives its increase of the building up of itself in love. But Mary, as St. Bernard justly remarks, is the aqueduct, or if you will, the neck by which the body is joined to the head, and the head transmits to the body its power and virtue. He continues, We are thus, it will be seen, very far from declaring the Mother of God to be the authoress of supernatural grace. Grace comes from God alone. But since she surpassed all in holiness and in union with Christ, and has been associated with Christ in the work of redemption, she, as the expression is, merits de congruo, what Christ merits de condigno, and is the principal minister of, in the distribution of grace. Now those are technical terms, but what Jesus does of himself as the God-man she does um, in a secondary way as following from it. So uh, 
again, um, we could say that Jesus is the source of grace because of the work of redemption, and Mary becomes the channel of grace. So if Mary is a channel, then in this marvelous union, which is known sometimes as the earthly trinity, Joseph must certainly have a role too, even that subordinate of Mary. And it's interesting, St. Francis de Sales also used this terminology of the earthly trinity. Everything that you've said about St. Joseph is what we believe about him. And we had that whole year, as you mentioned, to really unpack St. Joseph, to grow in our love of him, our admiration, our devotion of him. Uh, actually, uh, I'll say this about what we were talking about with the virginal marriage. And at, with that marriage, Maria, Maria Vagrida says that because Mary had made this vow of virginity herself. And so she was a bit troubled when God revealed to her that she was going to marry and that she was going to take Joseph eventually to be her spouse. And so, but God allows all of this to take place really so that then. Uh, Jesus would be born into a family, that there would be no scandal by the birth of Jesus. And so you have Joseph there and Mary, these two vowed in a life of virginity, then bring forth this new life, which is Christ. And uh, as you've articulated, you know, the, the life that we receive from the cross and how they collaborated then in that work of redemption. So we've talked a lot about St. Joseph. And of course, we're talking about Our Lady of America. And so this is just one aspect. So it falls underneath the umbrella of these apparitions because Sister Mildred received various apparitions of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the archangels. But Mary prominently spoke to her more than all the rest. And what is right. the basic message of Our Lady of America? For someone that's looking for a simple synopsis, what did Our Lady say to Sister Mildred, and why does it matter to me? Just like we think about Fatima and praying the rosary, for example, and that's kind of the quintessential mm -hmm. message. What's the message of Our Lady of America? It would seem, from what I have read and have heard from others as well, that our Lady appeared to this humble little nun, and she was asking back in the 50s that America should become a model of purity for the entire world. It's, it's, um, it's almost hard to grasp, but at that stage, I think it would have been much more possible. Uh, having grown up in the 50s, um, I will soon celebrate my 77th birthday and my 52nd anniversary of ordination. I remember in those years that the American bishops fully subscribed to a group called the Legion of Decency, and that every year we would take this pledge during the time of the homily in church pledging that we would not go to movies that were condemned by the Legion of Decency and that we would abstain from all kinds of what today would be known as pornography. So she's constantly talking about the life of grace, the life of holiness to which all of us are called, and 
that we, through her intercession, should become holy and pure, like her immaculate heart and the most pure heart of St. Joseph. That would be my uh, summation of it. Now, it has deeper theological roots in that she talks several times, Our Lady, to Sister Mildred, about the indwelling of the Most Holy Trinity. And again, this would be a basis for growing in holiness and then becoming a model for the world. So I would say she's asking for, first of all, um, our increased devotion to the heart of Jesus, a recognition of God's will for the Holy Family and then the Christian and Catholic family, rooted in the indwelling of the Most Holy Trinity, and thus transforming our country into a veritable model of purity, chastity, holiness for the whole world. That's a lot. Definitely. And when I was reading the messages uh, contained in this little diary book put out by the Apostolate that promotes Our Lady of America, one of the phrases that Our Lady kept using, and she used it several times, not once, not twice, three times, maybe, maybe even more than that, a handful, half a dozen times, she talks about reform of life and that we have to reform our lives. And I thought that was a very pertinent message and kind of that introspection that we do to say, well, how is it that I'm lacking holiness? You talk about the indwelling of the Holy Trinity and how that becomes a source of holiness. Well, how am I lacking to live a life holy? How is it that the Holy Trinity is not dwelling with me? What do I do to prevent that? And uh, so that was really one of the powerful lines from the messages that I read, um, the reform mm-hmm. of life. And another aspect of this message is that Our Lady of America wanted to be enshrined in the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. And so what do you mm-hmm. make of that request? Well, there seem to be two approaches. One approach is, by all means, we've got to get the statue of her which was sketched by Sister Mildred. Our Lady said, have a statue made that looks like this. Well, Sister Mildred was obviously not a great artist. Um, She had taught kindergarten and worked with little children. So she um, drew what she could to understand Our Lady's uh, as she appeared to her with her immaculate heart and holding a lily in her hand again, a symbol of purity. So, uh, I <laughs> statues have been made, and um, some bishops are very strict about this and say, no, the, the cultus or the devotion is not allowed, so you may not have the statue in any public place. Uh, again, I think that's unduly harsh. And... Uh, At this stage, however, given the fact that these bishops uh, are duly uh, appointed bishops in the United States of America, I'm sure that their judgment at this stage would prevent any statue of Our Lady of America 
being enshrined in the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. I would certainly favor it, uh, but I don't think it's about to happen. I do think that once the message is more deeply accepted, that this might come about in an easier way. So there are those who propose, by all means, we've got to get this statue into the shrine, and others who say that will happen once uh, this really catches on, provided that it does. Uh, and just recently, we've had uh, an instance of a consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, popes have been doing this since uh, the time of Pius XII. Sister Lucia, by the way, people always want to make her Italian and call her Sister Lucia. But in Portuguese, her name is pronounced Lucia. Lucy will do perfectly fine in English. <laughs> but she said, it needs to be made in conjunction with the bishops of the world. John Paul II went to Fatima and tried to respond to this request in 1982 on the 13th of May, which was the anniversary of the assassination attempt from which he suffered greatly. But he did not mention Russia explicitly, and it would seem to be to me that it was because of the whole diplomatic service in the church, Secretary of State, etc., saying, no, 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 don't. If you do, we could have big problems with Russia. And so supposedly he said it under his breath, and he did say, we consecrate and entrust to you those peoples whose consecration we you still await. And he said something just about the same in 1984. Both times he did not mention Russia. Two holy priests whom I greatly respect, um, Don Gabriele Amort, who was the chief uh, exorcist of Rome for many years, and um, Don Stefano Gobi, who was a priest who received locutions from Our Lady, uh, both said it was not done. Sister Lucia was asked, but several years later, and it was then published, she said, very coyly, it was accepted. Now, I believe that the fall of the Iron Curtain was a result of that, that people could practice religion in a more public way, that Ukrainian Greek Catholics were able to come up from the underground and say, give us our churches back, because Stalin had forced them into an illegal union with the Patriarchate of Moscow. So I do believe that what JP2 did was highly significant, but he didn't say the words Russia. And I notice in Pope Francis' most recent uh, prayer of consecration on the 25th of March, he did finally say, we entrust and consecrate. I would have done it the other way around. Consecration is a stronger word, I believe, than entrustment. Although, again, in Polish, the word zawiercam that uh, John Paul II 
very often used was a very strong word in Polish. So anyhow, he said, we entrust and consecrate Russia, Ukraine, and ultimately all of humankind to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And from all that I can see as one who studied consecration for years, especially the approach of John Paul II, I believe that it, it's, everything was done that finally had to be done, even if under the most unusual circumstances. So, I'm sorry if I got myself all tied up here, but I think something similar, that sometimes Our Lady's words are not taken at face value, and here we have six bishops saying, no, 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 this is all wrong, it's all wrong. And besides, this doesn't sound like Fatima or Lourdes or Guadalupe. And I just answered them back and said, what are you talking about? What doesn't sound like the Mother of God? They're just very specious arguments that, that they've used throughout their statements. So, unfortunately, we've had to wait much too long for uh, Our Lady's request to be carried out with regard to Fatima. How long do we have to wait until the statue is enshrined in the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception? Huh, I don't know. I think we just have to do the evangelizing work and trust that one day uh, people and bishops will wake up to the reality that this was a word to us and that it should be honored. Well, I know that you went on a long aside, you know, about Our Lady of Fatima making that connection, but I don't think you tied us up or anything like that. I think people really appreciate hearing insights about the consecration that just took place, and uh, I, I know I value hearing what you just shared, so I'm very grateful that you did uh, share that. Uh, when it comes to Our Lady of America then, so we need to spread the message, I think. And, you know, people talk about the champion apparition where I live in very close proximity to. Uh, and mm -hmm. this apparition is almost, I would say, virtually unknown to many people in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how right. more so Our Lady of America. So if people aren't aware of an approved Marian apparition, how many people have heard of this message of Our Lady of America? And then we then I mm -hmm. ask the question, well, how is it that we can share and how can we spread this message so people are better aware of it? That is a very good question because uh, bishops can come back and say, no, this has been forbidden. So um, I don't take it in such a strict sense, and I do believe that it is fair to to circulate the message. I see nothing in the message that is contrary to Catholic teaching. Definitely. And, you know, so one of the other things, too, about this apparition is that some of the prayers received imprimaturs. And so uh, my understanding is, is that in this uh, kind of document that they released, they, they did approve and say, um, this is a, a line from the Catholic News Agency article. The six bishops wrote May 7th that, given this history of prayers and religious articles being given approval by competent ecclesiastical authority, 
The use of such prayers, religious articles, may continue as a matter of private devotion, but not as public devotion of the church. So it seems that, you know, the prayer that Sister Ephraim, Sister Mildred wrote, uh, a lengthy prayer, and I've actually started incorporating it after my morning office praying it, um, that prayer, or the medal that Our Lady gave to Sister Mildred, and she had it struck and it was approved, that these are approved devotionals that you can use them uh, as mm-hmm. as the Christian faithful. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I quite uh, agree. Now, I have heard uh, uh, that Cardinal Burke wrote to the bishops and said that Archbishop Leibold of Cincinnati, who did not live very long, uh, approved all of the messages up until 1960 or something like that. Um, there are those who hold, no, nope, all he approved was the prayer. He did not give an imprimatur to um, the earlier messages, because they continued uh, close. Well, the sister died in 2000, and I think maybe the last messages are in the 80s. Okay. Um, so um, sometimes you get copies, and they're only those, and it, it's because those who issue them believe that Archbishop Leibold gave the imprimatur to them. It doesn't seem that that was the case, that, but that rather only the first, or, or rather the prayer, was indulgenced. And Archbishop Leibold was of the opinion that she could go ahead and, and circulate the messages which are in her diary. So, again, uh, I do not wish to be deliberately at odds with those six bishops. I did write to them. Two of them never bothered even acknowledging um, that they received them. Um, One wrote me a letter. Well, another wrote me a very, very brief letter because I knew three of the bishops, and I'd met a fourth one once. Uh, So I really do not have a great problem about the uh, diffusion of these words, because uh, the only thing the bishops could could say was an error, and I think they were quite erroneous, was about Saint Joseph being a co-redeemer. Uh, this this has already uh, been embraced by any number of Josephologists, and I give a fair number of them in my response. So, really, I do not see that there is any serious problem about circulating the message. I think it's very important. Yeah, and hopefully... That's my private opinion. So what is the difference between private devotion and public devotion? I don't know. And it does seem that the Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend has uh, allowed a, a chapel there to be used for the diffusion of the devotion, although he's called the Shrine of the Immaculate Virgin of the United States or something like that, not quite using the title Our Lady of America. And so the question then remains, well, if it can be done there, why can't it be done someplace else? 
Well, I hope that through this podcast, through our conversation today, people probably who didn't have a knowledge of Our Lady of America now have come to understand some of the controversial aspects as articulated in the first half, but then coming to understand what Our Lady said. And they might be curious now to learn more about this message. And you kind of answered my last question. I was going to ask if there was a place, if I want to honor Our Lady of America, is there a spot of pilgrimage for me to go? And so... Apparently there is. There is this little chapel. Yes, so as far as I can under, as far as I can understand, by the authority of the same bishop who convoked these other bishops and theologians, it is in Rome, Indiana. I've never been there. I don't know where it is exactly. I'd have to find it on the map. But he has authorized uh, certain minimal things there. I think the statue is enthroned, and people are going there. Rome, Indiana, and I think it's called the, the Shrine of the Immaculate Virgin of America or something like that. Okay, I'm going to check it out, and it might be one of these summer destinations that I make my way to, just uh, as mm-hmm. I grown my appreciation of this message and wanting to know it, uh, that I might make my way there and say a few prayers there myself. So, well, Monsignor, you are a wealth of knowledge about so many topics. I know co-redemption is one of your specialties, and I'm grateful that you came mm-hmm. on today to share with me about uh, Our Lady of America and that aspect of co-redemption and St. Joseph's participation in the act of redemption. So, um, Pete, you already mentioned your website where you have some of your articles on Christendom-Awake, and I'll be sure to find that. And put, dot org. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be sure to find that, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can go and find some of your other writings if they're curious, and if they want to see your letter that you wrote to these six bishops about Our Lady of America. So uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Monsignor, and I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks, or if I don't see you in person, maybe you're presenting virtually, I'm not sure, but for our annual no, gathering. I'm, I'm hoping to, to present in person, God willing. Well, wonderful. <laughs> well, then we'll be together there, so that'll be great uh, to be at the Mariological Society meeting together. So thanks so much, Monsignor, for your time today. You're welcome. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope that my conversation with today's guest was one that enriched you spiritually and also helped you to foster a deeper love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you do me a favor? Go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the podcast so that others might find it as a recommended podcast from other Catholic podcasts that they might listen to. And if you don't mind, share about the show on social media so that your friends and family might come to find it and be enriched by our conversations as well. And if you don't mind, you can follow me on social media at FR Edward Looney on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And this show, How They Love Mary, will soon be a book available from Sophia Institute Press. You can already go over to their website and pre-order How They Love Mary. Thanks so much for listening. May God bless you today. Know of my prayers for you. And may Mary pray for you today and always. 